Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. I'd like to read that for you from the uh, New American Standard text, if you're following along. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I think it's important as we study uh, this book, this last book of the Scriptures, that we understand some of the motivation behind uh, God giving us this message. And one of the things that is um, uh, going to be uh, challenging for us to you know, kind of keep in mind as we go along, we speak of Matthew as having written Matthew. We know he did that by inspiration. And Mark, who wrote Mark by inspiration. And Luke and John and so on and so forth. And we look at those and we say, well, Matthew did this and said this. Uh, even though the Holy Spirit was dynamically guiding his writing. But when we come to Revelation, it's a little more difficult to say John said this or John said that because the Revelation is by and large uh, the, the message of God to John. God is talking to him. God is giving him information. He's giving him visions. There are times when John describes what he sees. But there are other times when he is simply uh, writing down what God is saying. And as we look at this first chapter, uh, we have a mixture of both of those kinds of things. And, and we find that John is writing to seven churches, but it is Jesus who is actually giving to those churches the message. As we get into chapter 2 and we begin to look at the message to each of the seven churches we will discover that Christ Himself is speaking to them. And yet, uh, as we come to the end of each one, we're going to see a rather common phrase, uh, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so, when we uh, begin with verse 4 here today, we find that uh, John is giving this address to the seven churches by the direction of Jesus Christ. He's giving them a greeting, grace to you and peace from Him who was and who is and who is to come. And he begins to describe the triune God. But first of all, we want to ask, what are these churches? What seven are we talking about? And why are they significant? And if you... Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hand out a map that you can tuck in your Bible and keep track of, or maybe you already have one uh, in the back of your Bible there. But if you can imagine the, the Mediterranean uh, north of Africa, Egypt and Libya and all of that on the, on the southern border of the Mediterranean, and you look upward uh, into Asia Minor and Europe, uh, if you can imagine modern-day Turkey, 
and then the, the Greek peninsula, and then the bootleg of, of uh, Italy. And you look up there, what we're talking about is the western border of Turkey, uh, bordering on the sea there, and the island of Patmos is kind of parked out there offshore a bit, looking into Turkey, and this is what, in the Roman provincial terms, was called Asia. Today, we refer to Asia as something much further to the east, and we refer to this section as the western aspect of Asia Minor, but if you can think of Turkey and think of that section and imagine those seven churches there, that are scattered around Ephesus, Laodicea, and Pergamum, and whatever. But the interesting thing is, there were more than seven churches in Asia. We know of at least 11 churches in Asia that were addressed, uh, either in the Scriptures or by the early church fathers. And there were probably more churches even than that. Some have suggested that these seven churches were kind of like epicenters, from which other churches were started. But there were a number of churches in Asia. So the question immediately uh, comes to mind, why these seven and not any of the others? And what is the significance of seven versus eleven or ten or fifteen or five or something else? And in the Scriptures, and we're introduced here to symbolism, the, the number seven is a number uh, signifying completion. It's not particularly a divine number because we find that the Antichrist also has sevens. So it's not that it's a divine number, but it's a, it's a number of completion. It suggests that the whole is wrapped up in these seven. And as we look at these seven churches, we may... Presume, and as we get into a study of them, you can uh, see for yourself if this is true, if you think, that when we listen to the message to each one of these churches, in some way or another, those messages cover every church of all time. In other words, we can see ourselves in one of these seven messages. We can perhaps see ourselves individually. We can also analyze our church culture and our church personality and our weaknesses and strengths and very likely see our church represented by one of these seven churches. In other words, this is a whole picture of the kinds of issues that congregations face, both good and bad, some very good and some very bad, and some in the middle. And these uh, letters to these seven churches uh, suggest to us a kind of a reflective analysis that we ought periodically to do to say, where am I, where do I fit uh, in this grouping? So uh, the seven churches then probably represent the full revelation of Christ to the church, look in the mirror and see where you yourself will fit. And that's going to be the focus of the revelation. Now, 
It'll be a challenge to us then as we go along, starting in chapter 2, to say which one of these churches looks like us. And which one of these churches looks like me as an individual, and where do I fit in this uh, descriptive uh, collection of the word to the churches. The other thing is that the book of Revelation is written to people in tough times. I think that's important to bear in mind. God has not left us clueless as to where our source of encouragement and strength and victory lies in the face of opposition. The churches of Asia Minor were struggling with persecution by their Jewish counterparts. They had come out from Judaism. They are now, by this time, a distinctive and separate uh, religious body, if we can call it that. Um, They are no longer part of the Jewish community. And that has stirred no little trouble with Rome because the Jews were an approved and accredited religion, whereas once the Christians became distinctive, they did not fall under the protection of the accredited religion. Meanwhile, the Jews had great resentment toward the church. And so these churches had been suffering from persecution uh, by the Jewish synagogues and, and the Jewish people in the, in the communities. But they had also suffered to one extent or another, perhaps the, the worst period of time had been under Nero, but they had suffered persecution at the hands of Rome. And uh, following Christ had been costly for these people. And so, as we begin to consider the revelation we also need to bear in mind that it is a message to people and to congregations going through tough times, particularly tough times that don't seem to make sense. We often ask ourselves when we're falling into trouble, um, not of our own making, what did I ever do to deserve this? That's frequently a question that I hear people pose. I was having a conversation with a friend this past week, and uh, every once in a while we will talk on the phone, and it had been a while, and uh, he happened to catch me. I spent Wednesday afternoon in the emergency room with my oldest son, and uh, and some other people from the church showed up, and so we were kind of having a party, if you can call that a party. Uh, But in in the midst of that, I get this phone call, and we're having this conversation And uh, he said, well, what are you doing? And so I told him, well, I'm in the emergency room and I'm going through this and whatever. My son's dealing with this. And and we just kind of started talking about some of the different things that believers we know are are struggling with. And he said, you know, I don't know what it is. But he said, we seem to be in a time when unbelievers are doing well. And believers are really under fire. They're having a lot of trouble. And, uh, you know, there, there's health problems and there's financial problems and there's relational problems. And, and he says, uh, the unbelievers I know seem to be doing very well. Now, I don't, that's not a scientific, uh, you know, survey by any means, but it was just an impression. And sometimes it feels like that. It feels like that 
As David put it in, in Psalm 34, uh, I have seen the wicked uh, flourish and grow like a mighty tree and spread forth its branches and, and, and bring out its leaves. And it, it's gorgeous and huge and, and full of uh, blessing and richness. And he's asking that in question like, uh, what about the righteous? Here's the wicked flourishing. What about the righteous? And he says, and yet, one day I looked, and that tree was gone. Just in a flash, it was gone. But I have never seen the righteous forsaken. And so, David puts that problem into, into focus for us. That sometimes it feels like the ungodly are prospering. And it feels like the righteous are suffering. And what is the answer? And the Revelation addresses that very question. When you're going through the trial, when you're going through the fire, when the floodwaters are coming against you, here's the message to fortify, to encourage, to strengthen, uh, to, to fill you up and to bless you with the confidence that we come out victoriously in the end. And so... Uh, John begins to open the Revelation with this greeting to the seven churches. And then he moves right into uh, the source of it, speaking to us of the triune God. He says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and, to the, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so, John tells us, this message is coming to me from God, who is a trinity in unity. The Father, who was and who is and who is to come. Uh, the, John is the one who reminds us in his gospel that Jesus is the I Am. And that I am is the I am of the burning bush before Moses in Exodus. Whom shall I say has sent me? And from out of the burning bush comes this statement. Say to Pharaoh, I am that I am has sent you. And you say, what kind of grammar is that? And what kind of grammar is this? And what is this talking about? But in essence, it's simply saying, I am the eternal one. I always am. I did not begin. I do not end. I have always been. I always will be. And I am today. And I am the eternal one who stands with you. So he says, the eternal Father, the God of, of eternity is speaking to us. And he says... Uh, to the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now, that causes a bit of consternation. <laughs> a lot of people read that and say, what are the seven spirits? What does that mean? And uh, if you read commentators, you can probably make a stack on either side of the table and uh, start piling up the ones who believe that they're not the Spirit of God and those who think it is the Spirit of God. And when you're done, you may have an equally high stack, depending on who you choose, but, but the reality is uh, 
that no one can say with absolute certainty, is this the Spirit of God or are these angels before the throne of God? And the seven spirits of God uh, in Scripture have a, a biblical basis in Zechariah and in Isaiah that suggests to us that it is a name for the Holy Spirit in His fullness. Remember I said seven is the number of completion. And if you look in Isaiah, and if, if you look in Zechariah, and you begin to study and explore this a little bit, I'm sure your Bibles have cross-references, and I may have given you some there. But um, as you look, you may be able to say, well... There aren't really seven different spirits of God. There's one Holy Spirit who manifests Himself in completion and fullness uh, in answer to all of our, our needs and our issues. I will give you My Spirit. He has been with you. He will be in you. And everything that you have seen Me do, you will do also in greater works because I'm going to the Father. John says that to his disciples or, or Jesus says that to his disciples in, in John uh, 14 and 15. And so, many people say, this is the Holy Spirit who is being symbolically represented here as the fullness and completion of all that we need in God. You notice that I titled section 2, The Triune God, and that I... Uh, titled Letter B, the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before the throne. So I've tipped my hand in terms of leading you to believe what I think it's saying to us. But I have to admit that when you study the other side of the issue and you look at the seven spirits who have the seven or the seven angels who have the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and and you start to look at those kinds of things, and, and the Jewish um, idea that there are seven archangels before the throne, and that each one of them has a specific ministry uh, for God, and, and you begin to study that side of, of uh, that angle, um, well, it kind of looks like they've got a good point. Frankly, I lean toward this being the Holy Spirit, simply because we're in the midst of a greeting from the triune God, and this occurs right in the middle between the Father and the Son. And it seems uh, not logical to me that John would interject angels into the middle of this uh, when he's talking to us about the triune God. But this is not an argument I would die over. <laughs> so, and I, and I hope that doesn't disturb you. There are going to be times in Revelation when I say to you, it could be this or it could be that, and here's the background, and I just don't know. And that's what I'm saying right here. Could be angels, could be the Holy Spirit in His fullness, and I just don't know. I have an opinion, but that's all it is. And uh, sometimes the Scripture leaves us there. You know, when we need to know it, God will make it very clear to us. And if we don't need to know it, well, it may stay a little ambiguous for a while. Uh, but uh, my sense here is that God is revealing Himself to us in all of His fullness. And then He says, And to Him who loves us. 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The Son is the third member of the Trinity who is mentioned in this passage as being the one from whom the revelation comes. And I want to park here for a moment, and I want to point out to you the terminology that is used. First of all, it says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, if you are wrestling with persecution, and if you are at peril for being incarcerated, or tortured for your faith, or put to slave labor, or even slain for your faith in Christ, if that's what you're struggling with, if that's what's opposing you, isn't it wonderful to know that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has been a faithful witness, that He never backed down, that He testified to the truth and went all the way to the cross, but furthermore, that He triumphed over the cross. He was not defeated by the cross. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the resurrected Christ. He is the victor. Wouldn't it be good to know if you were facing strong persecution for your faith that resurrection is in your future because Jesus Christ has blazed the trail and He is the firstborn from the dead. And furthermore, if you're dealing with seeming tyrants who seem to have all the, all the power and they are capriciously in control and you're at their mercy, so to speak, wouldn't it be wonderful to know that He is the King of all the rulers of all the earth? That no matter who seems to be in sovereign control, the reality is there is only one sovereign. His name is Jesus And He is in authority over the kings of the earth. He is the the one who rules the world by the word of His power, even to its elements. He is in control. And so we always relate to Him who has faithfully run the course, who has faced the cross, who has put death to death by His resurrection who is triumphant, and we follow Him who guarantees us that kind of victory. We may not be facing those kinds of things right now, but we may someday. And, as you well know, people in our country, young people in our country, have already faced those kinds of questions Uh, at the gunpoints of terrorists who have invaded uh, their classrooms and their, their places of business. We know that 
there may be a price to pay for our faith. We never know when that moment may come, when we are on trial, either by so-called legitimate authorities or by truly terrorists. But the reality is that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That He has won the victory. And we are safe in Him. We can rest in Him. And have confidence in Him. And so John says, This is Jesus Christ, the Son, who is addressing you. The one who has uh, been the faithful witness. The one who is the firstborn from the dead. The one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then this next phrase, if you write in your Bible, underscore it. If you write in the margins, put a big arrow. If you don't do either, write it down somewhere and tack it to your mirror. To Him who loves us. To Him who loves us. The verb there is a participle. Present, active participle. The one who loves us now and always. The focus is on the continuity of His love. It is never broken. He loved us on the cross. He loves us in this moment. He loves us in the future. What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? What can stop His love? What can get in the way? I had breakfast the other morning with Carrie, and we were talking about a book that he's reading that in essence was saying that, that the church, the, the, the evangelical church, still struggles with a proper understanding of the nature of God. And that most Christians tend to see God kind of like a Zeus, the Greek God, who sits in the heavens rather capriciously throwing lightning bolts at people. And, and we imagine that, that that's somehow the God that rules over us. Things happen to us, and we don't understand them. Why did that lightning bolt come my way? You've heard me talk about this again and again, and I, and I come back to it, friends. And the reason I do is because we have such a hard time getting our head around it. That God does not do bad things to good people. That's not His nature. That's not who He is. Nor does He turn this sinful world into a utopia just to benefit us. We live in a hazardous, fallen, and risky environment. Bad things do happen. They don't happen because God picked your number today out of the lottery and decided you were going to have a terrible event. We live in a world that is subject to catastrophe and disaster and 
sad and unfortunate things. It is not at the hand of God that these things come. God hates sin. He hates the evil that is the result of sin. He came to destroy the works of sin. He came to bring us to utopia. But as the old Puritans had a good handle on this concept, this is not heaven. Heaven is a place of future blessing and reward. This is life in a fallen world. And in the midst of that, we need to come to to a great understanding and, and grip upon the reality that when we have come to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and the enmity of sin and our rebellion has been dealt with because we have trusted by faith in His atonement on the cross. And we are forgiven. That the debt is paid. That we are no longer at odds with God. And the reason that the provision was made in the first place is because God loves us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loves us. And in His love for us, He has made provision to tear down the wall that has separated us. God has reached across the wall. He has come in search of us. Adam, where are you? What did you do? Come back to me. He has come looking for us. And now that we have had our eyes open to the Gospel and we have received the forgiveness and the cleansing that is in the atonement and the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God. And John says, this is the One who loves us. He loves us. I wish for so many believers, so many of you even, I don't know who you all are, but I know you're here, just statistically. I wish that you could stop seeing God as having a bat ready to give you a smackdown. Every time you mess up, He's on your side now. It's not that He's naive to you messing up. It's not that He's blind and can't see your sin. Of course He can. But He's no longer in a place of judgment. Because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. And there is no more judgment. He is now in a place of support and encouragement and blessing. He wants you to win more than you want to win. 
He wants you to be victorious more than you want to be victorious. He wants to come to your rescue in your bondage. He wants to release you from your addictions. He wants to free you from the things that trouble you. He wants to bring you to a broad place of victory and joy. That's His desire for you. He loves you. And so you don't have to run from Him when you mess up. You need to run to Him. You need to go to the One who will never condemn you. Because the condemnation has already been taken by Jesus. Again, it's not that He's naive, blind, or stupid. But the condemnation has been dealt with. And now you come to One who will support you. Who will encourage you. Sometimes we need to sit down and have a conversation with Him. And we need to say, God, I don't like myself very much. I'm struggling with this. And I hate hate it. And And I wish it weren't so. And I really want you to show me how to walk victoriously over this. Instead of running from God saying, God must be really upset with me for messing up. You know what the word propitiation means? All of His emotion toward your wrongdoing, all of His anger toward sin, all of His hatred for for sinful behavior has been expended on Christ on the cross and it's all gone he has no anger toward you he has no angst with you He's not ever going to push you away and say, I'm disgusted with you. Because He knows your frame. That we're dust. He knows that. And He says, come to me. Come to me. Let me help you. To Him who loves us. That's an amazing, amazing statement. That God loves us. We need to stop being afraid of Him. You say, Paul, that's a dangerous statement. You ought to have a healthy fear for God. Well, I didn't say you shouldn't respect and reverence Him. But perfect love casts out fear. You should not be afraid of God any longer. If you're lost in your sin and still in the darkness and at enmity with God and you have not trusted Christ, you need to be afraid. But if you have come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing and you have by faith received that, You need not fear God. Perfect love casts out fear. And we are brought to a place of loving Him.
because he first loved us. You know, if I could convince and persuade everyone in this room how much God loves you, did you know I would never, ever have to even bring up one word of law? No, thou shalt not, or you ought to. Did you know that? Do you know why? Because if you see how much God loves you, and that you're truly free, and that you really are the apple of His eye, that you are the focus of His affection, that, that He literally rejoices over you with singing. I started to say when he wakes up in the morning, but he doesn't wake up. You, you wake up. He never slumbers. I was using that as a figure of speech. But you wake up and he's singing over you with love. Zephaniah 3.17. Rejoicing over you with love. Singing. Imagine it. If you could get it, do you know what the consequence would be? You'd be in love with Him. How can you, how can you rebuff someone who loves you so much? How can you push Him away? He loves you so much. How can you run from Him? He loves you so much. It's so safe. It's so warm. It's so cozy. It's so blessed. It's so wonderful. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It's full of joy and praise. I was praying that just yesterday, driving around. I said, Lord, I got irritated about something, to be perfectly honest with you. I got irritated about a lot of things yesterday. But anyway, I got irritated about something and I said, oh God, if only I could get how much you love me. I should be driving down this road just singing about you and how wonderful you are. I was in Chicago traffic, so maybe you can connect a little bit there. But but I realized, God, you love me so much, I ought to just be driving down this road shouting your praise. And, and you know, if you get it, if you get how much God loves you and you love Him because of that, I don't have to worry about you doing the right thing or the wrong thing. I never would even have to mention the law. Because your love for God would drive you to please Him. Because you want to. And when the Holy Spirit nudged you, It would be such a blessing and such a privilege to obey Him and to please Him that you would do it because you want to. There would never have to be a thou shalt not or a you ought to. Never. Because you would be so full of a love relationship with the God of the universe that you would be walking hand in hand, dancing and singing with joy in your heart over the love of God and the love you have for God. 
And that is exactly the message of the New Testament. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Free from the law. Because you don't have to worry about the law. When you know how much He loves you. And it brings you to love Him back. And the rest just falls into place. It's as natural as breathing. It's supposed to be as natural as breathing. I wish this morning we could all stop being religious. And just fall in love with Jesus. To Him who loves us. Wow. He has released us from our sin by His blood. He has made us a kingdom of priests to our God. To Him be the glory and dominion forever. (laughs) Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Here is the insight. Jesus is coming again. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Don't ask me how every eye on the earth is going to see him. I have no idea. (laughs) In my strange imagination, I see the various levels of the crust of the earth and the molten center. And I'm wondering if Jesus shows up in Israel, uh, if those uh, on the opposite side, uh, I don't know, Hawaii or somewhere, are looking through the earth. I mean, I have these weird thoughts. And that's not important because strange things are going to happen when he comes back. But every eye will see him. And all those who pierced him. You know, for the Jews, that's going to be an amazingly glorious day. I mean, they're going to be in the 11th hour and the 59th minute before it's lights out. And their Messiah is going to come. And they're going to see Him. And they're going to grieve because they pierced Him. And everybody else is going to grieve because He showed up. And that's... That's the triumphant future. John's giving us a glimpse. We're going to look at a marvelous vision of Jesus Christ as John turns to see who is speaking to him. And then we're going to look at a message to seven churches. And then we're going to take a trip with John up into the heavenlies and look at how the end is going to unfold. And boy, this is going to be a fun time. I hope you get it this morning. God loves you. Don't let go of that. Let the Holy Spirit make it true in your heart and mind. Let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross, rose from the grave, 
ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you, O Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. But not only have you loved us, even now you love us. May we respond to your love and draw near to you. Thank you for the freedom that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.